Pleasant are the stars, are they not? Their gentle humming, a perfect octave from our own deep music, a harmony that resonates throughout the cosmos. But, of course, this is not why you are here, I believe, why you have asked to see me, why you are listening tonight. I will indulge you, as is my custom, but be warned, for it will soon be apparent that it is difficult to discern which properties each thing possesses in reality. In this episode of Dark Stories from the Campfire, we present to you three tales dealing with magic, dreams, and the occult. For our first story tonight, we present The Village of La Roque de Mar. The archives of Saint Atelier has stood for half a millennia or more. Its Gothic architecture looms high, and with its carved figures and intricately woven designs, the structure continues to haunt the courtyard below. The only sign of life is trapped within the rose-colored windows, where flat depictions of ancient kings, queens, and heroes play out their most glorious adventures for all time, and for all onlookers who happen to pass by. In fact, it was the faces that drew me in initially, and it should come as no surprise that could be frequently found within its walls, even more so when I took up the study of history at the local university. Though I have to say, more than a few of my professors challenged my devotion to the subject with their tedious lectures and their attention to all things moot. I was to give a dissertation for one of my particularly dreadful classes when I discovered my topic required me to search deeper in the archive than I had before. I had gained permission for this endeavor some weeks prior, and with the key I now had access to the sub-level storage. I would spend the next four days down in the basement, with the musty smell and leaking water, rummaging through box after box, carefully taking notes. And so it happened on the fifth day I came across a box unlike the others, for not only was the wood older, but it also was sealed with a lock. Though in the end the lock wasn't much of a deterrent, as age and water damage had warped the wood around the edges so that the hinges simply came off after a few strong pulls. Inside was almost nothing, merely a stack of worn pages. Most of them were in such a state of deterioration it rendered any words written thereupon unintelligible. Though from what remained it became clear the contents of the box referred to the village called La Roque de Mar. The place was not completely foreign to me, at least in name, for as a child I had heard the rumors about the village, though its location was never specified. Some placed it in the east, while others swore it was just to the north. Be that as it may, whatever debate the location conjured, anyone who spoke of La Roque de Mar would say the village no longer existed, as some terrible evil had inflicted its inhabitants. The evil would be revealed to me shortly. For as I pulled a few more pages from the box, I came upon a letter written by Antoine Moreau. The brief letter was evidently written to an authority figure of some sort, or at least one who was in proximity of such an individual. I will include it here in its entirety, not only for preservation purposes, but to also show some light on the mystery of the village of La Rouque de Mar. Thus the letter begins. Dear Sir, Upon requesting to write you, I have been asked to state my affairs plainly, and I have taken to the task earnestly. 
but now I am sure you are aware of my imprisonment, though with equal conviction I do believe a proper explanation of the circumstances of my unjust condemnation have been neglected. Please allow me to present that argument myself. I was orphaned early as a child, losing both parents to sickness. I may have perished as well, for we lived in a rural farming community many miles from town, had it not been for a passing neighbor who stopped for some water. Understanding the direness of the situation, he took pity and brought me into his house, which was fine enough for he lived alone. Jean de Bois, that is what the neighbor was called, was a kind man, showing me the same affection the father would bestow upon his child. We were, of course, poor, but I never wanted for food or a warm blanket when the weather turned harsh. At the age of thirteen, he formally took me on as an apprentice, and trusted me with his trade, which was that of a fortune teller. And thus I was thrown into the world where one could divine the future by a mere glance at tea leaves or chicken bones or a crooked line on the inside of a hand. Over the course of the next several years, we would travel extensively, following any fair or tournament we could find. It was all quite fascinating, to be honest. There was a power in controlling the future, I dare say. Regardless, each day a long string of people entered his tent, begging him to know the outcomes to their concerns. But alas, while my adopted father had the purest of intentions, for never once did I detect him as a charlatan, nor was ever accused of faulty practices. He had, undoubtedly, always failed to foresee the future accurately. As our travels wore on, and we saw ourselves in familiar places, those seeking his services dwindled. While before he was sought out to ensure proper marriage arrangements, he now found himself mired in the mating rituals of pig. On more than one occasion, I tried to offer my advice, or some new way to read the bits of bone spread out upon the table. To this he would become harsh, ending the conversation before it began. In the end, John Dubois, broken and old, returned to his home, where he would see his own end six months later. Again I found myself alone. I sold what I could, and with the meager amount of coin I was able to collect, I uprooted myself from the only home I'd ever known, finally setting in the obscure village of La Rouque de Mar, hidden behind some rock cliffs near the sea. The inhabitants were friendly, and when they heard of my plan to open a bookshop, something the village desperately needed, they took up a collection. Within a few months, a small shop had been erected, and the first small crate of books had arrived. And not long after, I had my own chosen apprentice to train and to care for. To be sure, books were now my profession and livelihood, but deep inside I yearned for the road and the declaration of divinity, intent on correcting the mistakes of my adopted father. I had become convinced he had failed due to his incomplete devotion to the art. Each time I wrote to inquire about another crate of books, I would ask the seller to pass along any ancient divinity texts they had acquired. In the meantime, I became quite the pillar of the community, even holding the mayorship for many years. As it so happened, one afternoon a package was delivered to my shop from a vendor located in the east. The binding was old and smooth. But it didn't take me long to learn that this was an ancient book of rituals, including several entries dealing with magic rites predicting the future. One section above all caught my attention, for hitherto I'd never known the practice before, and that was herespicy. This became an intrigue for me. Of course, I instantly ran into a problem. The sacrificing of animals had long died out, its purpose being rendered obsolete. 
Nonetheless, I tried, and over the course of several weeks, I would visit the butcher to collect the discarded entrails, taking them back to my rooms and running my fingers through them. Yet I saw nothing. Not a word did the intestines say to me, their bumps and veins offering no clue to the future. I implore you to consider that no wrong had been committed, no sin in your eyes that I had been engaged in. I merely listened to the ancients. And who shall we listen to if not the ancients? Is it not their wisdom we seek to aspire to, that we have wrapped our lives around? Was it not Socrates, the father of philosophy himself, who sought peace through the oracle, only to spend the remainder of his life ensuring the prophecy correct? But alas, they had a flaw as well. They too were unable to see what they had in front of them to truly control the future. Had they died out if they could see it? I am sure by now you understand the actions I took, and how my vision saved the people of the village. I admit I was a little nervous, but not once did doubt enter my mind. One night, as I was closing up the shop for the day, I wrapped my arms around my apprentice, flowering his ears with great appreciation for his hard work, before inviting him over to dinner as a sign of thanks. It was easy for him to say yes, and was soon following me through the streets of the village back to my rooms. I assure you, I catered to him as much as possible, providing as much comfort as one can imagine. It was only when he was deep in drink did I pounce on him. Delicate sensibilities must prevail, so I will spare the details concerning his death, only to say, when I finally let his entrails guide through my fingers, I fell into that of a trance, where I saw water in a great storm, the village starving, and a faceless mass with a torch. When I woke the following morning, instantly I rushed to the town council, urging them to force an evacuation of the village and encourage the replacement of the top of the cliffs. Using my reputation, I was able to convince the council, and by that afternoon we were all lined up at the edge of the cliff, watching the village below. In the evening, a harsh wind blew through us, and dark gray clouds formed above. For three days, we watched our small village get pummeled by the seawater. It was during this watery siege I had revealed to a few trusted townfolks my deeds and vision, though that was my flaw. For a week after the storm had passed, the body was found, and I had been arrested. It was here the rest of the letter had been warned to nothing. The archives say nothing of Anton Moreau, nor of any trial he would have been subject to. From the last scraps of paper, I can conclude that the rest of the village, once they learned the origin of his vision, did not react with any revulsion. In fact, it seems they began to mimic Anton in his horrific deed, scouring the countryside, luring in lonely travelers. There is some indication the village became quite prosperous. However, it would not last long. One morning, the village would be raided by the authorities, its citizens killed and the village raised to the ground, the seawater washing away the last remnants over time. For the second story of the evening, we present Poems for Penny. Her sky was gold with streaks of silver clouds, heavy up front before trailing off towards the horizon. A field of soft pink flowers laying beneath, stretched in all directions, surrounded a small blue house. And in the distance, mountains of swirling purple rose to meet the gold and silver of the sky. Everything looked as though the stroke of a painter's brush was pushing the colors back and forth, blending them together before being separated. Penny had been watching the sky for hours, 
green stems deeply rooted into the ground, delicately encased her body as she lay with arms crossed behind her head. After letting out a sigh, Penny sat up in the flowers, smoothed out her bright red dress, and looked around. It was pleasant here, she thought. It had always been pleasant, for as long as she could remember. For some time, Penny let her fingers meander through the flowers, feeling the petals, and happy their beauty will always be with her, as per her wish. Penny thought for a moment, then touched one of the flowers, transforming it from pink to orange, then lavender, before replacing that with the original pink. The perfect color, she thought. At length, she stood up, straightened her dress, turned, and made her way towards the opening of the house. The inside of Penny's house was somewhat bare, a table containing a glass pitcher and a cup, a couch with half a dozen books resting next to its legs, a virginal in the corner, and a rack of dolls. This suited her nicely, though, for she didn't require much. Pouring herself a glass of wine from the pitcher, she smiled and walked over to the instrument. For hours she played, listening to the sound of the plucked strings reverberate off the lavender walls before finally soaking through and flowing out into the fields surrounding the house. And in her mind, Penny would tell herself magnificent stories with the music, such as a grand ship tearing through the ocean waves, or encounters with mysterious creatures on faraway islands. Fantastical stories she hardly ever found in her books. She thought many times how perhaps she could make her own sea and sail towards her own adventures. But in the end, she was content in her world. When she had finished with the instrument, Penny stretched out from the couch, let the silence take over and got lost in her thoughts, the last remnants of her internal story and music. As those faded and the silence grew overwhelming, she reached down, blindly selecting one of the books at her side. What shall we read today? Penny asked out loud, picking herself up and looking over at the rack of dolls, her only and truest companions. When she gazed upon the title, she said with some joy, Oh, one of our favorites. Pulling back the cover, she let the pages separate and fall until they came to a complete rest. Her eyes scanned the words in front of her before reading out loud to no one but the dolls. Just as nothing is more foolish than misplaced wisdom, so, too, nothing is more imprudent than perverse prudence. Then looking up at the doll, she said, Yes, indeed. Meandering back and forth, she would read to herself, before switching to read to the dolls out loud. She was a few pages into her book when she heard a noise coming in from the outside, a noise she hadn't heard for a long time. For a few moments, Penny rested the book on her lap, staring at the opening at the front of the house. When several minutes had passed and the sound didn't return, she resumed her reading. Only this time, as she began to read aloud, her voice became distant, trailing off, and sounding as though it were disintegrating, as though each sound was crumbling in the air before her. She coughed, cleared her throat, and attempted once more to read aloud, only to be met with the same result. The noise from the outside returned, swelled, and evaporated just as quickly. But this time she could tell what it was, a voice, nay, two voices intertwined. Placing her book back down by the corner of the couch, Penny made her way towards the opening of the house and looked out. The colors before bright and in constant motion were now dull and motionless. Penny stepped out into the field of flowers, and as she did, she began feeling dizzy, out of breath and outside herself. 
The flowers beneath her feet withered. What was once pink was now different shades of gray as a change of color cascaded outwards from the house. Unrelenting and turbulent, the wind whipped around Penny, tearing the last of the petals from their stems, sending them towards the darkened and static mountains. And like a cloud riding the storm, the voices returned with the chaos, but this time there was more rhythm to the sound, as though a chant was being recited. The chant grew louder as Penny stumbled back to the house, collapsing on the couch. Penny became dizzier by the minute, and from time to time she forgot where she was. Above her the roof cracked, with chunks falling downwards, breaking upon the floor. The dolls had all become colorless and were cracking, and the books, having since fallen to pieces, were now scattered around the room. Penny tried to stand, using what was left of the couch for balance but it was to no avail. Penny's breath and sight left her as she fell to the ground. The two men in gilded robes seemed surprised. The first, in a panic, looked down at the leather-bound book between his hands, then back at Penny, while the second man stood motionless, mouth wide open. At length, he muttered, My God, it worked. The first man slowly nodding in agreement. Penny looked around the bland wooden room, Lit candles burned near her head and feet. She could feel her body, but wasn't able to move. Suddenly the second man said, What does it say we do now? The first, frantically tearing through the pages of the book, shook his head. I am not sure, he replied. All we have are poems for resurrection. How we proceed now, I am unsure. Little by little, Penny regained control of her limbs. When she felt she had enough strength, she lifted her hand and when she held it in front of her, shock pulsated through her body. Before her was her hand, that was clear, but it was dried and decomposed. Penny was confused. Where was her home, her flowers and golden sky? The two men were arguing, looking at her, then quickly back at the book. At length, the two men became quiet, and the first began to approach Penny. Scared, she tried to move away from him, tried to sit up and position herself out of his reach, but whatever strength she previously thought she had was gone, so she was forced to lay there and watch him draw closer. When he was at her side, he reached down, placing his hand upon her shoulder, and said, I am positive you are unaware of where you are, and if you could talk, you would have many questions. All will be answered in time, but for now, rest. If you need to move, proceed gently, for you have been dead for three hundred years. For the third and final story this evening, we present The Contemptuous and Pure. T'was in the early spring when I took myself upon the road, looking much like a hermit, for I had rigged myself in ragged woolen clothes and a long beard held over from the winter months, I set out and resigned myself to learn about the world and its many marvels. When, after traveling for a month and a day, I came upon a stream of clear water, shaded by dense trees lining each side, it was still early morning, not quite time for breakfast, when some magic overtook me, and I found myself sitting beneath one of the trees close to the shaded stream. Fatigued but warm, I soon slipped into a deep slumber, and thus I dreamt. Before me was a wide circle, larger than any I had ever known, so enormous I could scarcely see its edges, and at its center a small hole, no bigger than a man, 
After some time, the hole within the circle rippled, and out sprung a great serpent with breath of fire, who wrapped itself around the circle, setting its edges ablaze. When the serpent had squeezed enough, it unbound itself and began spinning around the circle with such force a tremendous wind was left in its wake. But no sooner had the serpent began its circular motion that it stopped, gazing upon the circle. When the serpent saw what it had done, it wept, spun once more, then returned to the hole in the center of the circle, which turned to stone shortly thereafter. A thick fog had settled in, and I could barely see the rest of my body. At length the mist began to dissipate, and when it finally cleared, a grand tree stood before me, the top reaching nearly to the sky. Protruding outward from its massive trunk were eight thick branches, extending out in equal direction, while the top mimicked the bottom rooted into the ground. I felt compelled and approached the tree so I could touch it, but no sooner had I approached when birds and various other fauna sprang from its leaves in a magnificent explosion, circled around the tree before flying and sprinting out into the lands around me. Stepping back, I saw, not too far from me, a slender gentleman clad in black armor. In his hands he swung a sickle in which to chop down the tall grass before him, thereby creating a roadway, for several yards behind him was a caravan. And though the armor-clad man did not acknowledge my presence, I took off my hat and bowed nonetheless, and waited eagerly for the caravan to arrive. The first to come into my view was a single individual, golden in both hair and robe. On their chests, embroidered in blue was an S. And though each step they took seemed slow, it took little time for them to glide by and out of my view. Behind them a massive wagon appeared, pulled by two large muscular horses. Following the wagon were four long lines of soldiers, each line carrying either a rod, a sword, a metal disc, or a cup in front of them, and each one dressed in red velvet. When the last of the soldiers passed by, a lone individual, much like the first heading up the caravan, came into view this time with silver hair and draped in a silver robe, a large owl stitched upon their chest. Curiosity struck me, and I decided to follow them, wondering where such a procession was headed towards. But I needn't wonder too long, for soon I saw in the distance, rising from the horizon, a stone-fortified castle with seven towers. From the tallest a banner flew with the word Sakaian Presentis et Futuri, above an image of the serpent. The doors of the fortification were round and made of solid iron and copper bars crisscrossed from edge to edge. Pacing to and fro, a green lion guarded the iron entrance, gnashing his teeth at anything that dared come close to his domain. In an instant, wings sprouted from the lion's back and he took to flight, circling around the castle and its high towers before returning to his place by the door. The caravan I had been following stopped in front of a ladder, leading up to the top of the capsule walls. The four lines of soldiers waited as streams of people both ascended and descended each side of the ladder, and from time to time someone would fall from the ladder to be lost in the watery moat beneath them. Presently I took my spot in line and waited my turn. Very near to where I was standing I saw a young man, dressed as though a madman, walk by with a small dog nipping at his heels. Finally, it was my turn to climb the ladder, and as I rose up each rung, the ladder seemed to extend higher and higher. Even though it felt like I should be midway, I was no further from the ground than when I began. 
and though the thought of giving up, of forfeiting my place in the ladder, entered my mind several times, I continued pushing myself forward and was soon gripping the edge of the castle wall. Climbing over, I discovered I had entered a single room of a house. In the corner, a man sat humming as his child played in front of him on the floor. I tried to inquire as to where I am and how I entered the house, but neither the man nor the child stopped in their actions. For a long time, I stood watching the two, not knowing how to remove myself from the room. Suddenly, I heard a click behind me, and a rush of air brushed against my back as though a sealed door had been opened for the first time in years. Entering the room, I saw a woman, clothed in tin, seated at a table in a much smaller room than the one previous. In her hand, a quill, and she was frantically writing as I drew nearer. Leaning over her shoulder to catch a glimpse of her composition, I instantly recognized she was recording my thoughts and everything I experienced leading up to this encounter. When finished, she closed her eyes, and without a sound mouthed the words that were on the page between her hands, as though committing it to memory, so it shall not be forgot. I was awoken by another traveler tapping my foot, asking if I was okay. Rubbing the sleep from my eyes, I nodded and stood up. A few minutes later, I was once again upon the road, as the world lay before me.